for me, a bar of soap is not just a bar of soap. I know all the things behind it. And I wonder, I wonder how much more we'd start to value products if we knew um, what, what went in it. Welcome to the 100 CEO Project Podcast. You guys, welcome back to the 100 CEO Project Podcast. Today, we're talking with Andrew Verbus. He's the co-founder and CEO of Pacha Soap Company. Uh, they create fun, all-natural, super colorful, scented bar soaps and hygiene products that are sold online and in stores nationwide. Um, there's been a new development in 2020, and that includes hand sanitizer, but we're going to hold off on that story because that's a really good one. Um, for right now, just to give you a little bit of background on what motivates them, Pacha believes in what's called spreading goodness around the world. Since 2013, the company has donated more than 5 million bars of soap to Africa, Again, they support clean water initiatives and hygiene education. And a really cool thing that you're going to find out they do both domestically and globally is that's investing in and supporting communities and people through skill development and entrepreneurial opportunities. I'm going to stop there because the list could go on. So, Andrew, thanks a bazillion for taking time out to talk to us today. Uh, thanks for having me, guys. Great to be on this podcast. So I'm going to start with um, getting a little bit of background from you, and then we're going to dive right into the insights that you'll share with us. Yeah? Great. Awesome. Yeah. Um, well, a little bit of background on me. Um, I'm from Kansas originally, and I would say that I'm an accidental entrepreneur in that um, I've always been thinking of uh, doing things differently or trying things out. Uh, making things, um, whether it was just being a barista in my family, making coffee drinks, or when I was six years old, I loved to paint rocks and <laughs> give those to people. So I was always just doing things um, for fun. I had a, this vision for Pacha when I was 19, uh, turning 20. And it was when I was a volunteer in Peru. I went to a liberal arts college here in Nebraska called Hastings College. And it was there that it let me design my own program uh, around getting Spanish credit. So I was a volunteer in Peru and was living and working with people there, really fell in love with the culture and the people and had a vision for um, what I referred to then as a social business to um, create small scale soap shops in developing countries um, to use local ingredients, make soap, um, for students for hand washing at schools. Um, and I needed a way to fund that. And so thus Pacha Soap was born. And I really loved the way that people were connected to the earth and it got me into what, you know, natural products are like, et cetera. So I kind of fell into it that way where, um, I wasn't, you know, I didn't come from a, a background necessarily of, of business, but through my travels and learnings and just honestly, I, through running into walls, I kind of learned about business and learned about entrepreneurship. And I had the support of my now wife, who is my best friend at the time. And she was really the only one that would listen to me in depth about this idea or this dream. So, um, but that's how Pacha formed. It was really an organic thing that grew into something bigger than I intended of, at that time. Awesome. So that leads me to um, another question. And this comes from a chat that we had with you um, a few weeks ago. And when you were talking about business, um, you kind of blew our minds that day. <laughs> you said that there's, but basically that there's no such thing 
as a social or impact business, but rather that business by its nature of existing should serve people or the planet in some way. Is that fair? And if so, could you elaborate on it? Yeah, no, great. It's, um, well, as I said, when I, when I first had this idea for Pacha, a lot of people thought, um, you know, why didn't you form a nonprofit? Why didn't you form a foundation to do this? And the short of it is I didn't want to raise money from people. Like I was a Boy Scout and um, we sold Boy Scout popcorn. But instead of selling Boy Scout popcorn every year, I just, I had a job working with my dad who was a bricklayer so I could pay my way to summer camp. So I, I didn't like selling overpriced popcorn um, or like kind of like asking for, for money from people. I like to work and pay my own way. And so it was a little bit of that mentality where, well, I, I want to have a business. And I figured, well, I need to learn how to make soap. I need to learn about business in order to make this vision or dream come to reality. Um, but, you know, in those early years, I read a lot about social business and this idea of an impact business and what it means to have a, a business that was doing more than just making a profit. Um, and so even then, when I first started, this is like in 2013, uh, but even earlier, I had this idea in 2010. So in those years, I, I read a lot about this designation of a social business. And of course, this was when a lot of people were considering it even earlier. And now in my, I guess, more mature view of business and more, more of a fuller scope, I don't view someone who has a welding shop in Nebraska any less of a social business than Pacha Soap Company um, because social business means that you touch people. It's social, it, it involves people. Well, show me a business that doesn't involve people. And, you know, that right now we have a designation that social business is meaning that, oh, it's pro people. And I think that is good. I don't think that's bad. But what I guess I would love to see is that people were to awaken from within and recognize that their business does touch people and that their business is an impact business because every business has an impact. It's whether it's positive or negative, but the first, the first is just being aware of it and being, and so we, we, if we um, make a separate classification for what is a social business or an impact business, I think to use the words of um, a writer that I really like Richard Rohr, we other, we, we might divide, we might create a division that's unnecessary. Rather, I like the approach of, of saying, um, you know, basically you, you are an impact business. You are a social business. If you're, if you're in, if you're in a business, if you own a business, it doesn't really matter what it looks like. You're, you're already in the impact business. You're already in the social business. And so it's that understanding that then allows us to, to understand it, embrace that, that truth, and then develop a strategy of saying, okay, well, how, how do I want to be an impact business or how do I want to be a social business? First of all, what is that impact? And, and so I think um, versus being more exclusionary of putting it off on, you know, um, a, a, the 5% of businesses that, that deem themselves as social, what about the other 95% of businesses that are out there, even small businesses that like use the welding shop example, um, they're, they're making, making people's lives better every day, right? And, and they can have a positive impact on the planet and on people. And it doesn't necessarily need to be as, as big or as grand. It's, it's something that is already there uh, for all of us. So yeah, I, 
that's, um, that's come a lot, a lot of years for me to get there. And, you know, business is there to serve people. So there's this idea it's, it's taken a while for me to, to figure out the why behind Pacha or why I formed the company. But as I reflected on it, it was the simple fact that when the inspiration hit, I was inspired by this idea that business can free people, that, that capitalism, business, trade, it's, it is a tool or a system to free people. And I think that was novel in my thinking because I always viewed it as it's a, something there to that, that we serve. Um, but in reality, it, it is, if you take care of it, it's something that provides for you. And nature gives us this example all the time of using an example of a tree. You know, if you take care of a tree, you make sure it has everything it needs and um, it, it'll provide fruit abundantly more than you can ever use or, or need or want. And so I think that, that that simple understanding that it's something to take care of, but that it's there to serve people is a really good thing. So when you started Pacha Soap Company, it feels like purpose was really in your DNA and you really focus on your supply chain. And so I'm interested because it, one of the first places that I advise people to go and look is in their supply chain for places that they can make a positive impact. So what does that look like in your day-to-day when you're, when you're working on your supply chain? Yeah, well, it's a big, um, it's a big area that I don't think a lot of people touch because it is kind of complex or hard to do. Um, and typically all operations of companies are engineered towards low cost. Um, and, you know, not to say that that's bad or wrong, but if you look at, if you look at your supply chain or your cost of goods and you can figure out where you have the highest impact, um, it might be volume. It might be the dollars that you spend on something, but our journey has been one of, um, you know, our travels with soap donations, soap shops, um, clean water programs have led us to parts of South America, led us, led us, have led us to parts of Africa. And in those communities we've seen, and then through networking, we've seen, wow, there's an abundance of resources here that we could use in our own products. And we've all, you know, we've started our journey by just finding good certifications of products. Uh, oh, this has Rainforest Alliance, this must be good. This has fair trade certification, this must be good. And so that's where we started in our supply chain of just trusting certifications. But as we've gotten deeper, we've started to see the need for, oh, here, like, let's take this example. Um, here's this company in Ghana that produces smallholder palm that we could use in our, in our soap. Um, but they're undercapitalized. They don't have the, the required investment to, to get certifications or to operationally scale. And so it's become that sort of a, a relationship in our, in our supply chain where we could say, hey, if we go direct to some of these farmers and some of these partners, there is a cost savings in logistics by going direct, but there's also a premium that's paid because you're going straight to the farm. Um, and so you can pay more to that farmer that doesn't have to go through as many hands to get to you. Um, there's also something I guess I'm really passionate or excited about, which is can we bring transparency to where something comes from and who harvested it and the people behind it and the culture behind it. And consumers may not want to know every single detail, but allowing people transparency into supply chains is, it's, I don't know, it's been a fascination of ours because we've been so fascinated by traveling and seeing where ingredients come from. 
So it's been you know, somewhat operationally and financially um, a good decision for us to explore our supply chain deeper. Um, but in another sense, from a brand perspective, we've gotten so much value traveling and seeing where something comes from, or, you know, most people don't know these ingredients and, and the process and um, the, the types of farms they come from, or the fact that somebody has become proficient at climbing palm trees in Liberia, which I tried and it's way harder than it looks. I didn't even make it like six inches. Um, <laughs> but like, it, it's cool to see those types of things. And then I think you start to appreciate it better because for me, a bar of soap is not just a bar of soap. I know all the things behind it. And I wonder, I wonder how much more we'd start to value products if we knew um, what, what went in it. And, and it really goes across all industries. And you know, for our focus specifically, it's agricultural because most of our ingredients are agricultural. Um, and so just understanding how those systems work and um, what goes into it, is, it's been huge. But it's it's complex too because you can go to a one stop shop to get all of your all of your ingredients. So it's it's a it is a continual uh, progression because you can't do everything right away. Um, but for us, it's it's been it's been a fun journey. It's just more, um, yeah. It, it is just that though. It is a journey. Has that been challenging to scale at all? Yeah, I mean, you certainly have to pick which which things you focus on. Because for certain things, um, supply chains are just supply chains like baking soda. There's not really much you can do to baking soda. I mean, maybe there is down the road, but there, are, there isn't as big of a variety. Whereas if you look at something like palm oil, it has a really bad reputation for good reason. It's contributed to a lot of deforestation, especially in Indonesia and Malaysia, parts of Central America. But if you look at that supply chain, it also produces a lot of good quality uh, oil in a very small amount of land. So it still as a crop makes a lot of sense. And there are people doing it right. Um, and they, those people that are doing it right, the two farms that we're sourcing from Liberia and Ghana, they, they are able to scale to our need. So I think it, in that sense, for that specific ingredient, it started off being something that I guess some people could say is complex, but if you demystify it, you can get really good quality, high impact supply chains if you dig in. Um, but it, it, it is complicated, especially in the United States where most of the things that we source for our product don't come from North American market at all. Um, and I had to go about it the, the complicated way, I guess, in some ways, because you know uh, I went to leaders in natural personal care brands and asked if we could use their supply chains. I didn't want to repeat the, you know, reinvent the wheel, but most people keep their supply chains proprietary and they don't want to share, which has puzzled me. We're actually in the process of building a business right now to unlock our supply chain to other vendors. We'd love to see other soap makers use our supply chain because we've done the hard work. I mean, why not? Why not unlock really good quality impact supply chains? Um, yeah. So guys, I'm going to pivot just a little bit. Um, what is really cool about Pacha Soap Company, Andrew, is that you guys are not just spreading goodness outside of the U.S., but also to the communities here at home. And you've done a big push to do so during 2020 
by launching uh, what you guys call the We Got This campaign. And if I, I think I read where you said it's bringing a little ray of hope throughout this crisis here in the US. Um, it specifically involves your move, your pivot, to start producing hand sanitizer, primarily in the beginning to serve the frontline workers. And it also involves uh, a little bit of push or outspokenness on your part, where you made an appeal to the governor of Nebraska to help ease restrictions around the use of ethanol. So can you tell us a little bit about how that all went down? Yeah, it was a, it was a really fun story. So uh, our local hospital here in, in Hastings reached out to ask if we would produce hand sanitizer for them. And we said, sure, we'll, we'll figure it out. And so they had a little bit of alcohol that they were able to source, but indicated that there was a shortage of alcohol for hand sanitizer production. This is early on in COVID when, um, you know, we, nobody knew what was going to happen, but they did know that they're going to need a lot of this disinfectant. So, so we produced a little bit for them. And then it begged the question for me of like, well, what, what do you mean there's a shortage of alcohol? Because um, here in Nebraska and Iowa and Kansas, and there's, there are many ethanol plants that produce uh, high grade alcohol from, uh, from corn. And so it, it was an interesting, you know, I think this was on a Friday when they reached out and by Saturday afternoon, you know, the, the governor of Nebraska is so, um, so kind and so motivated to just move this along. And um, a group of people in Nebraska had already been thinking about it. So we were just one of those, one of those voices and one of those people to stumble along and try to figure out, okay, well, how do we unlock this, this alcohol from, from ethanol um, to go into hand sanitizer? And you know, it, it's been it's been really cool. Not many people will recognize, but it was because of that legislation from the FDA and temporary guidance that there was able to be an abundance of alcohol of of hand sanitizer in the market um, that was at a high quality. So they released temporary guidelines, and um, the governor of Nebraska and the state of Nebraska and the ethanol board they all rallied to and and worked with the FDA to make this happen and. It was just neat, like even the, the AP reporter um, that wrote an article in New York Times reached out and got our perspective. And um, it, it, was, it was cool to see how quickly people could rally to make this happen. And it amounted in a large supply being available and most of it, um, all of it from the United States was, was really good quality. Um, and even some plants like the one that we have here in Hastings made alcohol as a result of this at the highest uh, quality at USP grade. So they were able to open up into it and into a whole new market of high grade alcohol that can be used for this application. So it, it was neat to see how, you know, something like a supply chain shortage of alcohol, it showed, first of all, showed us how dependent we were on, on supply chains that were existing, but it was also neat to see how quickly American ingenuity can kick in to get into a supply chain like this and produce an amount that was that it made it affordable for everyone to be able to buy hand sanitizer. And because this was at the time when people were selling it on Amazon for like hundreds of dollars and there's tons of price gouging going on. And so it was neat to unlock that for for everyone. And we uh, yeah, like you said, we made sanitizer early on, we gave away like something like 20,000 bottles to frontline workers and to people here in Hastings and we use it as a fundraiser for, for the local community. 
Um, and then we ended up getting into it in a commercial standpoint and selling to places all over the United States, uh, like Costco and Whole Foods Market. And so, um, yeah, it was, it, we don't get to do that sort of supply chain quickness, I guess, in the United States, but it was neat to see it. You have a real theme of generosity that's running through that I'm noticing in all the things that you're sharing. And so I'm interested in what kind of advice do you have for companies that want to be more socially impactful or even established ones? I feel like it's it's harder for the larger ones to pivot because they're, they've got things set up. You know, maybe they haven't left themselves enough margin to explore. They just don't want to. What kind of advice do you have for either entrepreneurs or more established companies to making the shift to using their business for good? Yeah, well, we've taken, it probably is my background um, and like the family that I came from that I orient towards more of a philanthropic approach. But um, as I have matured, I actually don't even know if that's the right way to do it. This idea of doing good so you can give, I think, or doing well so you can do good. I think... um, what I'd encourage most people to look at is just, just understand your supply chain or your business really well. So that let's just say that you were sourcing something that was truly causing deforestation of the Amazon. Like it was just no joke happening, right? If you know it, then you can be, then you're conscious, then you can make a decision. But I think if you just don't, I think the biggest thing is just not knowing something. And, um, and, and it's not even really to cast judgment, but there are some things that are, it's really not, it's really can be really damaging to cut down rainforest because you don't get that back. Or there's some of these things that we know, like even just reducing plastic, like our company is consciously looking to reduce the amount of plastic packaging that we have out there. Um, if you're conscious of it, then you can make decisions and, and start shifting more towards like aluminum that's more recyclable or but I would say the advice I have is just to be conscious and um, you're never, the other advice I have is that you're, you're never going to be perfect at anything. There's always continual improvement. Even the companies that do things really well, they typically have areas they can improve. And if um, so, so no one's arrived yet. You're, you're always in that, always in that process as we are too. We never want to be the company to say that we haven't figured out. We are excited by some things and we want to continue to figure it out, but, you have to strike a balance between people, profit, and the planet. You have to find that synergy. And I am just, I believe that you can actually do something that's good all the way around. Um, it's just way more difficult. It's so much easier to pick one or the other. And in business, if you ignore profit, if you ignore the ability to make money, your, your business just doesn't survive. It just doesn't make it. So you have to consider that. The real trick is doing considering that while you consider people and planet. So I, I don't know that I have advice in terms of how we've figured it out because we're constantly in that, in that battle of figuring it out. But consciousness is the first step I'd say I'd recommend. Is there something in particular, Andrew, that you want to share that's like really top of mind for you? If so, you know, have at it. Let us know. Um, and then also we always have a, a finishing uh, finishing question, so to say. Um, well, I guess, so I am a young CEO, young entrepreneur, I'm, I'm 30 years old. And so I, I think um, 
the thing that I would always encourage us to do is people that, that I've learned in my short 30 years is to get different perspectives and consider them um, because, and whether they're, they're people living or, or not, whether it's through writing, but considering perspectives that are a little bit different than ours of ways of being, I think it's really valuable. And um, really it's just diversity of thought. It, it's important because if we can have diversity of thought yet think independently, I think that's where the real magic is. So it's, as I started off in this podcast by saying not othering people, but you know, making profits, not bad. Um, taking care of people's not bad. Uh, taking care of the environment's not bad. And so you, you tend to find people in silos. And I think to the degree we can work together and consider different perspectives and not get too entrenched. And also to not always think so linearly, sometimes things are more circular and to consider things in a more holistic stance. That, that's what I try to do a lot. And of course, sometimes, you know, the answer is less, the answer is more immediate. Like, oh no, we, we should stop paying for premium cable at our company because that's not good for profit. You know, oh, people like watching TV. Now oh, they'll, they'll do without, right? There's, there's some of those things that are really easy, but uh, I think just re- wrestling with the challenge is really helpful that we can be contemplative and that when we're contemplative, we're at least making decisions consciously and to just follow in the path of here is what success looks like. It, it looks like making millions of dollars and then retiring on a beach. Well, it could, not saying it's not, it could mean that. What if it meant something a little bit different? Um, And so, I don't know, it's just to, for all of us to consider and engage in conversations with people, especially when things are a little bit more polarized, that's what I'd recommend we all try to do. So one quick question right there. Um, You've accomplished a ton already, and especially for being just 30 years old. What's the best advice you've ever received? Well, I just, um, a mentor of mine actually just said, two days ago, he said that no one at the end of their life, um, you know, no one at the end of their life ever wishes they worked more. Um, and so I'm, I'm a father and a husband, a second, uh, I have a two and a half year old and, and um, another one expected in May. And I think the best advice he gave me is that um, th- that is the most precious and to make sure that it's not sacrificed because um, we can accomplish a lot and do a lot, but sometimes that ambition can get in the way of what really matters. So um, I would say if we do really well for the world and for your employees and for profit and all these things, but your own home or your own friendships or relationships are falling apart, then there's something that's not quite working. That's probably the best advice I've been given. And, and for me, as somebody who's very driven, it's hard always to remember it, but it is really good advice and something that grounds me. So on, on that family note, do you have any advice for working with your spouse? You all seem to be doing a very good job of it. Well, so we started working together and um, about four years into the company, we decided to, it was better for our relationship if one of us was in the business and one of us was more on the outside to give life support when, you know, when things got hard. So that's how we really work well together now is I'm in the business every day and I'm able to go to her with 
with things that I'm struggling with, wrestling with, and get a different perspective. So that worked really well for us. Um, and I guess the thing that I would, the advice I'd give to entrepreneurs is there's something you're really, really good at, but most of it you're not. And, I, and your, your strength really comes from connecting dots. And so other people, it, it's better to not be a player on the chessboard. It's better to manage the, the chessboard and finding people who are really good at, um, really good in certain positions is really helpful for you to take a step back and to let people do their jobs, but still connect those dots to help make moves when you need to. So I, I'm only reason why I'm able to think like I am is just because I have really good people, people that are far smarter than me in their different capacities. Andrew Verbis of Patch of Soap Company. Thanks so much for taking time to talk with us today. Guys, for all of you listening, we're going to tell you that we barely scratched the surface. There's a bunch more to find out, both insights with respect to entrepreneurship, um, how to do good through business, as well as the specific products that Pacha Soap Company offers. So Andrew, how can they find you? Um, yeah, so you can check out our website. It's www.pachasoap.com. Of course, active on all the social media channels, and our team does an amazing job connecting with people. Um, but that's that's really the best place to find us. Thank you. Thanks, guys. All right. Hey, guys. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode, and if you did, please share it with your friends and colleagues who also have to navigate this leadership stuff. As you can see, this project is about to be a mini masterclass in every episode. Best part: it's free. So if you like it, please do us a favor and take a screenshot, share it on social with the hashtag 100CEO. That's 100CEO. That way we can say thanks and share it in our stories. And finally, if you've got some insights you'd like to share and you're a CEO, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us at 100CEOproject.com or on LinkedIn at the 100CEO Project. Until next time, keep leading by example.